3: The Large Nerdron Collider Podcast is a production of iHeartRadio.
4: Hi, everybody. Welcome to the Large Nerdron Collider Podcast, the podcast that's all about the geeky things happening in the world around us and how very excited we are about them. I'm Ariel Caston, and with me, as always, is ace reporter Jonathan Strickland.
3: Don't know why there's no sun up in the sky, stormy weather. We're recording this in the middle of a big storm in Atlanta, so if you hear thunder in the background, that's not our producer going bonkers and adding Halloween soundscaping too many months early. That's the sound of thunder in the background. Yes. Just so you know, we don't mean it. We're going to try our best to soldier through. However, uh, this does lead me to a completely unrelated question for you. Okay, as the heavens shake around us, Ariel, I have a question. All right, you have been given the role of executive producer for the next big Broadway hit. And like any good executive producer, your plan is to take something that people already know and turn it into a musical. So what geeky property? It can be a TV series, a comic book, it could be a movie, it can be, but it has to already exist and be geeky. What do you turn into the next hit musical?
4: I mean, I, I think WandaVision, I know that that's probably not as clever of an answer as I ought to give because I I use it for a lot of answers right now but I feel like it already lends itself to music. Well, like, I I feel like it ought to be a musical. Yeah.
3: Uh, well, and also, you know, with that particular one, I like that that answer because, you know, you think about all the different sitcom styles that they did throughout the show, you could imagine them doing a musical where they do like a musical pastiche that is reminiscent of specific eras of musicals, like, you know, like the big golden age of musicals, and then like the angsty 60s and 70s stuff that came out, and then like the bombastic 80s musicals like Phantom and Les Mis. Like that could be really fun.
4: It could be, although I wonder if it would lose some of its innate like structure premise if it used original songs instead of jukebox musicals because it lends so heavily to pre-existing properties. I feel like it would almost need to be a jukebox musical. And I know you and I both do not super care for those.
3: Well, I, I think you could do like parodies of like, like not, not like an outright parody, but clearly inspired by a specific song, because I would argue that the, the sitcoms in WandaVision like, you could tell what the inspiration was clearly, but it wasn't like they were directly replicating those uh, sitcoms.
4: That's true. Uh, my backup choice is Richard Corman's The Fantastic Four because, by golly, that one, I feel like, already is a musical just without the music.
3: <laughs> that's a, yeah, all right. I like, yeah, that's uh, uh, Roger Corman. But yes, yes.
4: Oh, oh no. <laughs> Listen,
3: I do it all the time. Like, after you said it, my brain was like, wait, is that? Right. But that's just. But no, I agree. Fantastic Four would make an excellent musical.
4: Okay, now what about you?
3: Uh, Big Trouble in Little China, the musical.
4: That would be fantastic. I feel like it would be amazing. I feel like it would be akin to Beetlejuice and the amount of stage magic it would need to be successful.
3: Yeah, I, I think of it as something along the lines of like Evil Dead, the musical, which is one of the most over the top gory musicals ever made. Like, I think something along those lines would be a lot of fun. And uh, it's fun to talk about that kind of stuff. It's that that fun sort of fan discussion. A lot of the topics we're going to talk about this week are coming to us courtesy of Comic-Con, which happened uh, since the last episode. And one of the things we want to talk about at the top of the show is a story that's, uh, you know, a sort of frustrating one. Kevin Smith's Masters of the Universe uh, reboot slash reimagining slash sequel uh, launch, the first half of the first season launched, and a lot of fans reacted, let's say, strongly to it, and it has one of the most unbalanced Rotten Tomatoes scores I've ever seen. Uh, as we record this, the critic score is at 95% fresh. The audience score is around 34%.
4: Listen, nature itself is angry at that (laughs) uh, because I hear the thunder in your background. Yeah, uh, critically, uh, it's it's really good, but fans just don't like the fact that there's not as much He-Man as some of them expected in there, apparently.
3: Yeah, I I feel like a big part of this is that the expectations were uh, subverted to a point where some of the fans got very, very mad about it. Right. Like it was this Mm -hmm. feeling that you, you promised me he man and you took he man away in like the first episode. And then I get some flashbacks, but he doesn't show up again until episode five. Spoiler alert, by the way, if you have not watched like Ariel, (laughs) if you have not watched the masters of the universe reboot, actually full disclosure, I haven't watched all of it. I just know what happens because I was following the story and, um, it sounds to me like a lot of people kind of jump the gun one they're They're reacting poorly to Tila taking such a prominent role in the series, which, by the way, is called Masters of the Universe. It's not called He-Man. He-Man. Um, but a lot of people are are saying that uh, her character is very different from the way it had previously been established, that the transformation doesn't feel particularly natural And there were some other complaints, some of which I think might have merit, but I I would argue that a lot of people, I think, are really jumping the gun that the first half of this season one is really setting up the hero's journey, which is really just begun by the end of episode five. And it's the the second part of season one that will really show us the journey uh, moving forward. And um, Kevin Smith himself has not shied away from addressing people's complaints.
4: Yeah. Uh, See, I I myself have been one to say, like, if you're not going to follow a storyline, don't call it that. You know, I've had that I've had that complaint with Disney before uh, with things like Peach Dragon. You know, they Mm -hmm. changed the story so much in that. or, Or, you know, people say about the way that they changed some other properties, Pinocchio or Mary Poppins or whatnot. Call it something new because you've changed it so much. But again, they called it Masters of the Universe. That's just like calling it He-Man and Friends. Um, And like as far as not following to what a character sets up as. And again, you're right. I haven't watched it yet. It is high on my to-do list. It's just been a busy week. I feel like the original show didn't set up a whole bunch of characters very well or very deeply. So I'm fine with them varying from that personally.
3: Yeah, I I feel the same way, Ariel. I think... Uh, We were going to originally do a full discussion about fan communities and how fans can sometimes take not just a sense of of love of a a property, but almost like a sense of ownership of it. And then they can get vindictive if they feel like there's been some sort of failure on the, the part of the creator's to give the fans what it is that the fans actually want. It's it ends up becoming a pretty toxic part of fandom. It's something that I've seen happen numerous times. I mean, obviously the star Wars fandom is infamous for this. And I I've been guilty of that myself being someone who has a fairly low opinion of any of the movies that are outside the original trilogy. Um, although I just say, I don't really care for those movies as opposed to it's ruined everything. So yeah, this is one of those stories where it's kind of disappointing to see how it has turned out. I think maybe if they had the full season, from what I'm guessing, if if the full season had premiered and not just the first half, a lot of the issues that people would be upset about would be somewhat resolved, although you'd probably still have a lot of dude bros real upset that there was a chick who was the lead character in their dude bro male power fantasy cartoon that was a commercial for toys back in the 80s yeah
4: because technically those dude bros if they don't like changing up the characters should also really hate the dolph lundgren version of the movie (laughs) i'm just i'm just saying Um, but who can actually hate that Uh, another property that you know if they don't get it right fans are gonna get real real finicky about it is dune and we got a new trailer for that
3: yeah, and uh, and that that trailer really drove home that everyone in Hollywood is cast in this movie.
4: <laughs> oh man, it's true. The funniest thing is recently they released a bunch of posters for Dune, and it's mm-hmm. got all of the main characters' faces up close. Of course, that's all the the celebrity casting. Uh, But then underneath it on social media, I think it was on Facebook, and I saw a poster for Aquaman or an article that had a picture of Aquaman. I'm like, that's not Jason Momoa's character in Dune, but I mistook the Aquaman poster for one of the Dune posters. (laughs) I guess he had to be there, but it was very funny to me.
3: Well, and the trailer, uh, I think the trailer looks beautiful. I think the cinematography Mm -hmm. looks amazing. I think the effects look really neat. I think the realization... Of the the world is really compelling. Uh, I hope that this will translate into a truly like like a linchpin science fiction film. One of those where you point to that and say it's like this in like two thousand one and like you know you name like the ones that are are sort of the foundations for great science fiction films. I think this has potential on a technical level and it's certainly like a lot of the actors they've cast are phenomenal actors so I'm really hoping that it all coalesces
4: so is this one of those movies that you would have them get rid of all of the previous versions like the 1984 version to completely reboot it or did you like the previous version oh you
3: like like my theoretical would you wipe out the like a race from time, uh, TVA style from Loki. Mm -hmm. Um, (laughs) uh, I don't, you know what? I think I would probably keep the the previous version uh, because it's such an oddity. It is not, I wouldn't call it a great film, but it has weird and evocative moments and I wouldn't want to lose them.
4: Fair enough. I I do feel like this trailer, at least now it's been a very long time since I've read Dune, Uh, is more similar to the source material than that original version or the first version of Dune that I watched.
3: It certainly feels that way to me, Uh, but we'll have to wait and see. I do think it looks like if nothing else, it looks like it's going to be breathtaking, but I really do hope that they are able to evoke the same sense of kind of wonder and Epic storytelling. That is the the first of the Dune novels. It really makes me wonder if they're going to try and tackle the rest because I think the Dune books get progressively less cinematic as they go on, like less. It would be harder to convert them into a cinematic experience as they go on.
4: Mm-hmm. They, they might do what other properties have done, like American Gods and or I, even NeverEnding Story, although to great detriment for NeverEnding Story, veer off in their own creative direction within the universe.
3: Well, we've got a couple of other trailers we want to talk about briefly before we go into our first break. And one of them is a trailer for the uh, the animated series coming out on Adult Swim here in the U.S. It's also going to be on Crunchyroll, and that's the Blade Runner Black Lotus series. And uh, what did you think of this trailer?
4: Uh, so... I thought the voice acting was very good. I know we talked about the voice actors in an earlier episode of LNC. Um, that it feels like bad CGI to me.
3: Wow, I had like totally the opposite feeling. I felt like the fight scenes looked amazing. They made me think of like the fight sequences of Black Widow, actually.
4: <laughs> the, okay, so the fight sequences were good. The fight there, there, there was at least one fight sequence where I went, "Wow, that looks really good," which further drove home to me that when I was watching characters bend their legs and they're, and I not I mean it's a cartoon. So of course they aren't going to bend like a real humans or like when they were talking, the mouths didn't quite match up. And I'm, I'm not certain whether they recorded it in uh Japanese first or in English first. So that might be a part of the reason the mouths don't completely match up for me, but it does give me just enough uncanny Valley for it to be noticeable as opposed to, Oh, this is just a cartoon.
3: Hmm. Interesting. I, I think I had a very yeah. different reaction, but I mean, I, I totally get what you're saying. I think when I saw it, I was thinking this feels very much like the world of Blade Runner, like that kind of mm-hmm. industrial Neo. Uh, you know, like, there's a lot of neon. There's a lot of like it's almost like Neo retro because you've got a lot of architecture and elements that date back to like the early 1980s, but obviously projected forward. Um, And it Mm -hmm. felt like it was true to that to me. But I I see what you're saying. I might have to watch it again and just see. But uh, when I saw it, I thought I hadn't really this was on my radar, but it wasn't something I was really excited about. But this trailer actually makes me want to watch the series.
4: Yeah, I I mean, I agree that like the the setting, it does feel very accurate to Blade Runner. Uh, And it, it had that very noir kind of pace to it as well. So everything I'm feeling is is just based on art style and maybe it was just the screen I was watching it on so i'm I'm definitely willing to give it a chance. something I wasn't completely on board with, but am now one bazillion percent on board with is Ghostbusters afterlife. I mean, like I was pretty sure I was going to be on board, but I, the new trailer just came out and I I could not be more smitten with it. The,
3: the the trailer was interesting. It gave a little more character. We got to see a little bit more about the, uh, you know, Egon's grandchildren, uh, mm-hmm. which is not a spoiler that's revealed in the trailer. And uh, so we got a little bit more time with them, which was good. We got a little bit more of the uh, the Stay puffed Marshmallow Man sequence in the Walmart. Um, which
4: is so disturbing.
3: It is. I'm still wondering what the tone of this movie is going to be. Like, is it going to be, is it going to have as much humor in it as the original Ghostbusters? Or will it be slightly like slightly less on the humor side? Like, it's clearly still there. I just don't know if it's going to be like the kind of movie where you first call it a comedy or if it's a, you know, like thriller comedy or horror comedy or whatever.
4: I mean, I feel like the original Ghostbusters it had comedy, but it felt it still felt very situational. And this feels situational. Maybe I'm just misremembering, but that's how it feels to me. And then like or at least the stuff that was really funny to me that really landed was some some of the more situational humor in it. And then this one feels that way as well, albeit media has changed in the last 30 40 however yeah. I mean, yeah,
3: yeah, a lot of the a lot of the jokes in the original Ghostbusters, not all of them, but a lot of them aren't really as uh, cool today as no. as they were treated back in the 80s. Like there was a lot of like, no, you know, you like me kind of <laughs> stuff coming from Peter Vinkman, which would not be cool. Yeah. It wasn't cool then. It's just wasn't called out back then. But yeah, yeah. Uh, I I don't know. I'm very curious to see more of it. I definitely want to see this movie. Uh, I am excited to, to learn more about it. I thought that seeing a ghost trap on a, uh, like, like on a, on a Rover, like a little Mm -hmm. remote control car was kind of a cool idea.
4: And, and seeing the couple of, uh, cameos, at least, at least at at minimum cameos that they had in the trailer excited me, even though I knew that they're going to be in the movie.
3: Um, yeah, there's a specific voice at the very end of it that, uh, Anyone who's a fan of Ghostbusters or uh, or I guess Skull Vodka will really recognize. But uh, yeah, I I can't wait for this. And here's the thing, y'all. Normally, we would have a big conversation after the break to talk about like some topic in geek culture, but we're just scratching the surface of the geek news this week. So we're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we're going to talk about a few more headlines.
4: all right we're back and we've got more news for you and this is something we've talked about a bunch on the show but we're going to talk about it a little bit more which is the pandemic pivot to uh, movies happening at the same time on your streaming device as they do in the theater because warner media has come out saying that they are going to make at least 10 films that will debut on HBO Max the same day they're released and they might release in theaters. They might even do more movies and they might release in theaters as like special engagements, Mm -hmm. but they're really looking at keeping this close release between theater and TV indefinitely.
3: Mm -hmm. Yeah. They, they, they said they don't really see the possibility of going back to the, Uh, just releasing out in theaters and it might be, you know, eight or nine months before you have it come out to home theater. That seems to be a thing of the past, at least for Warner, at least for now. Now, knowing that Warner is going to have a a merger with Discovery, maybe that will change when that happens. But this is something that did upset a lot of directors back when they were first announcing it, you know, back in 2020, when they were saying that the movies for this year were going to release simultaneously Mm -hmm. in theaters and at home. A lot of directors didn't like that because obviously what they are working toward is creating a piece of media that is meant to be experienced in a theater. And they felt Mm -hmm. that it, that the audiences were not going to get the experience that the directors were crafting. If they were watching it at home, I counter that with, I like it when people can continue to breathe. And so with, (laughs) with the ongoing pandemic and the rise of the Delta variant in particular, I think that this is, really the responsible thing to do, like some communities going to the theater probably isn't that risky. Ariel and I unfortunately live in a part of the United States where COVID transmission rates are on the rise again. So it's it's important to be responsible as well as, you know, support art.
4: Yeah, it, it is. Another thing, it's not just the, the viewing the art on the big screen, which I I will admit, is, is important. You know, there are definitely movies that I've said this would have been better on the big screen. Yeah. With the full surround sound, with being able to see all of the detail that so many people worked so many hours to put in. Yeah, watch, it, just, watching watching
3: watching King Kong throw a right cross at, at Godzilla. I mean, like, you yeah. just don't get that effect even if you have a pretty big TV.
4: Well, and the other thing is, uh, like, for instance, when I watched Black Widow, some of the CGI looked very CGI. And... I had a conversation with a friend about it. A lot of times when I'm watching television on an, like an, on an HD TV specifically, not on the big screen stuff that looks really amazing on a movie screen looks very fake or set or CGI to me on a television. Yeah. Um, Just because of the, the, the light and the resolution and the color and all that. So Mm -hmm. that can definitely take you out of it. I know for my friend, it did with black widow with some of the fight sequences. But also, you know, movie theaters are are stressed about this because if it releases at the same time on TV as it does in theater, people don't have as much of a reason to go to the theater if they were maybe on the fence about it. They'll just rent it at home. Mm -hmm. You know, that happened, again, with Black Widow. And so it had a really great opening weekend, but then sales kind of petered off. And they said that that was, you know, due to the fact that people could rent it on Disney+. Plus now it was expensive to rent it on Disney plus with HBO max. Like we're getting Dune. I don't think there's any cost to watch it. So I'm not even sure how they're buffering that part of the box office, to be honest.
3: Yeah, no, the, when it comes to things like figuring out how much of a a take subscription services are providing, like, you know, you can try and map it to the number of people who sign up for new subscriptions, but even that's not a, an apples to apples comparison. It's, it's a problem that Hollywood has been trying to grapple with for a while because Mm
4: -hmm.
3: like Netflix has been doing this for a while, right? Netflix keeps coming out with original programming, but how do you measure the success of that? I mean, Netflix has metrics on how many people watched it, but unless it moves the needle into how many people are subscribing and paying month after month to have Netflix, it can start to get hard to justify those expenses, and I mm-hmm. think we're going to see a lot of media companies kind of grapple with this. We might see things like like movie budgets take a big cut in the long run if things don't, you know, level out. But or that, a lot more product that, placement. Yeah, might might all become Space Jam Two, um, yeah. <laughs> which was which I think had more commercials per second than anything else I've ever <laughs> seen in my life. Oh, did um, you
4: watch Space Jam Two?
3: I watched I watched uh, I kind of watched commentaries about Space Jam, too. All right. I'll be fair. I did not watch because I I've never seen the first Space Jam. So I don't know that jumping straight into the sequel is really the right move for me. I wouldn't know any of the characters or the (laughs) lore. Who's this Bugs Bunny character? What is up, Doc?
4: You wouldn't get the in jokes between the first and the second one. Maybe. I'd that's get the actually joke ab- pretty unlikely.
3: I get the joke about bringing in Michael B. Jordan and, and uh, instead of Michael Jordan, which is a great segue to our next news item.
4: <laughs> hey, yes. Which and also HBO, which is that Michael B. Jordan is working on a limited series for HBO. Uh, that's a Superman series.
3: Yeah, with the character of Val Zod, a character from Earth-2 in DC Comics. So this is not a reimagining of Clark Kent, but rather the introduction of a character that has been uh, in the comic books, but now will be in a, a live series. This would not be a movie, but a series. And uh sounds to me like it would be a really interesting, or potentially a really interesting series. Like... Yeah. The challenge with Superman, of course, is always how do you create a compelling story for a character who has practically no weaknesses? But I have I have a feeling that this would be an interesting take on
4: that. I feel like Valzad automatically has an interesting story because in the comics, he's from Earth 2 and he takes over when Kal-El is killed. So the original the Superman we we knew, like the Christopher Reeve Superman um, is killed um by dark side which yeah dark side kills a lot of a lot of superheroes in the comics and then they come back and sometimes yeah. and sometimes they don't and sometimes there's a flashpoint and it's just uh you know it's it's always interesting because half the time when you i'm going off on a bunny tread now half the time when i watch dark side either in like a Zack snyder movie or a cartoon movie that's like straight to streaming or straight to dvd or whatever I'm like half the time I'm like, oh, man, Dark Side's so big, bad and powerful. And half the time I'm like, Dark side is just such a dumb dork. Um,
3: <laughs> <so>. <laughs> he, but, he, um, I will say he has not been handled with consistency.
4: <laughs> that is true. But one thing I will say is I consistently like Michael B. Jordan's performance and I really liked Raising Dion. So, you know, we've seen a little bit of him both being a superhero slash supervillain. And also, I don't know if you can call Killmonger supervillain but um
3: yeah you can
4: you can okay and then you know we've also seen his directorial side of superhero dumb with raising Dion. it was such a good it was such a, a great like series it was endearing and it surprised me at times and it really dealt with like interpersonal relationships without taking away the super aspect of it so like superman and lois is so much at-home slice of life that it doesn't feel very superman to me. So I think he's got a really good grasp on how to balance that.
3: Mm, agreed. And to round out our news in this one, uh, we had so many, like it was hard to choose which stories we we're going to talk mm-hmm. about because for the ones that we're including, there, there are at least, you know, 10 that we didn't touch on. But yeah. this one's close to our hearts. And that is that uh, Polygon reports that the bone animated series for Netflix is, uh, taking formation that they have their creative team in place. And Bone, for those who do not know, uh, it was a self-published comic book. It started off that way anyway, that has, uh, it's set in a fantasy world. It's kind of got an epic fantasy feel to it with some rather cartoonish characters who, uh, have, remarkable personalities and perseverance and bravery and it's just a very charming fantasy story one of my favorite Mm -hmm. comics ever and we were so excited when we first heard that this was going to become an animated series and now i think i'm even more excited
4: why are you more excited
3: well because the creator of bone has talked about how during the pandemic so the pandemic uh, sidelined the production of Bone just as it did
4: mm-hmm.
3: numerous other projects right and meanwhile here's the creator of Bone watching all these different animated series and saying wow i really like this person's work and wow i really like that person's work and ooh wouldn't it be great to get someone like this to work on Bone and he said that because of the length of the pandemic and how that impacted everyone's schedules it just so happened that he was able to get every single person who was on his wish list to come on board and be part of the team. So he's got a dream team and he won't he he didn't say who they were because he said he didn't want to steal Netflix's Thunder. But he said that mm-hmm. the people on his wish list are now actually working on the show.
4: I'm I'm also very excited for that. I I'm interested to see if it I feel like bone rides a very fine line between being enjoyable for adults and children. Mm -hmm. And I wonder if it will keep that or if it will lean more towards one demographic or the other in the Netflix show.
3: I would love to see it kind of stay true to itself because I I think it's the sort of thing that had I read it when I was maybe 10 or 12, I would have really been into. But even as Mm -hmm. an adult, I read into it and I'm like, like, There's some elements, there's some pretty dark elements in bone, nothing, nothing to the point where I think it's darker than say Lord of the Rings. Right. I think Mm -hmm. it's on the same sort of level as that, but Lord of the Rings does have moments that are pretty dark, especially if you're a little kid trying to read those books and you're like dealing with the fact that, uh, that major characters die. And you're like, this is, this is so not the way characters in kids books, like they don't die in kids books typically. So, so that sort of thing is, uh, you know, a little rough for kids, but I think it would be a shame if they strayed too far away from the tone of the original comics.
4: I agree. Uh, however, we're going to stray away for a quick break. And when we come back, we are going to do something that I think both kids and adults would like in a mashup.
3: Yeah. See you soon. Who are you going to call?
4: <laughs> Not me.
1: learn more at meaningfulbeauty.com
3: Well, after that masterful segue from my <laughs> wonderful co-host Ariel, smooth as butter,
0: we're so going sorry. to we're
3: going to do our <laughs> mashup now. Our mashup, so one of the other stories that we didn't really cover because really <laughs> the story is minimal is that, mm-hmm. hey, Guardians of the Galaxy's sequel has a title. It's exactly what you thought it was going to be. It's Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 3. Like, everyone knew it was going to be that, but now uh, it's been confirmed that that is, in fact, the title. So, yes. in case you were wondering. But we thought we would mash that up with Ghostbusters, since we got the trailer for Ghostbusters Afterlife. Um, who you want to go first, Ariel?
4: Ah. Uh... I'll go first. Alright. Why well, I stray from tradition. Alright. <laughs> this is called Ghostbusters of the Galaxy. The year is 1988 and the Ghostbusters are all living unfulfilling lives in New York after saving it from Gozer. However, despite not working together any longer, Peter Ray, Egon, Winston, and Janine decide one night to meet up for dinner just for old time's sake. Dinner, however, was not off to a great start. The appetizers were cold, and the drinks were watery, and they were seated right next to the restroom. Peter Venkman was the first person to get fed up with the situation and pushed for the party to leave. They all agreed, but as soon as they stepped out of the restaurant, they were all blinded by a bright light. When they could see again, they were no longer outside, but in what Egon could only deduce was a spaceship of some sort. As they started to look around to find a way to leave, they came face to face with a whistling blue man, who, as soon as he saw them, exclaimed, "'You aren't an eight-year-old kid. "'Who the heck are you?' That's a really bad Yondu impression all. Uh, "'Peter stepped up and said, "'I'm Peter Vankman and we are the Ghostbusters. "'Who the hell are you, Gonzo?' "'I'm Yondu,' replied the blue man. "'Dang it, Kraglin, you grabbed the wrong Peter. "'Does this idiot look like a kid to you?' "'Kraglin argued back. "'How the heck am I supposed to know? "'I ain't never seen one before.' Yandu screamed, well, now we're going to have to waste our time killing these fools. And the Ghostbusters watched in amazement as these two bizarre creatures, who they didn't think were ghosts, argued and threatened to kill them. But just then they heard something shatter. The thing that shattered, it turns out, was a glass jar full of some slime that Egon had found in an underground sewer. You see, Egon was hoping to get the team back together and brought it to dinner to discuss with them. However, all of the fighting between Yondu and Kragling caused the slime to grow and burst out of its container in Egon's duffel and start to expand. Ray yelled, "'You brought volatile ghost stuff into a restaurant, Egon? "'That's not sanitary.'" And the Ghostbusters started to argue, too. Janine, who was also along for this inane ride, figured she ought to pipe in. "'Hey, I'm Janine,' she stated, but no one seemed to hear her. "'I am Janine,' she stated again." before realizing nobody cared and she was stuck in space with a bunch of idiots, so she just shook her head in frustration. As the room filled with more and more arguing and negative emotion, the slime continued to expand until it exploded into space. But as it did so, the whole of the spaceship filled with hundreds of angry dead ghosts of Yondu's former crewmates who had been dispatched in one way or or another, and they started to close in around Yondu. He called his fancy arrow thing, but it seemed to not phase the ghosts at all. Peter saw his opportunity. He offered to help rescue Yondu from the vengeful ghosts, if Yondu would not kill them and return them home. Yondu said, deal. And so the Ghostbusters ran around the ship to make some makeshift proton packs and busted all the ghosts, at which point Yondu agreed to send them home. Winston, excited about being back at their ghostbusting ways and less than eager to return to being a bad children's performer, said, you know, some of that slime did escape the ship. It would be irresponsible to leave it out there doing who knows what. And Peter said, yeah, I'm not in a rush to get home either. Hey, Gonzo, can we have a ship? Um, hey, Egon, can you pilot a ship? And Yondu agreed it was the least he could do. So he outfitted the Ghostbusters to stop the slime. Just then, Kraglin noticed the ignored party member. He waggled his eyebrow at her and said, so who are you, sweet stuff? And she sighed and said yet again, I'm Janine. As the Ghostbusters suited up and launched into space, they find a tape in the ship's dash. They pop it in and their theme begins to play. We cut to the slime ever growing, zooming through space and millions of space ghosts popping up around it. As the slime reaches the horizon, however, it's all of a sudden eaten by another huge object hurtling towards us. A giant stay puffed marshmallow man, the devourer of worlds.
3: I like your version of Galactus. Thank you. I, I, I can't yeah. wait to meet their Herald. Uh,
4: yeah, I did set it up for a sequel or three.
3: That's it, great. You, you always have to do that. OK, all mm-hmm. right. Mine is called uh, Ghostbusters of the Galaxy. I mean, what else were you we going to call it? Here we <laughs> go. <clears throat> Peter Quill, a.k.a. Star-Lord, has a problem. Actually, he has several problems. One is that Gamora, the woman he cares about, has run off because she's actually a Gamora from another timeline and it would take too long to get into all of it. But another problem is that he and the remaining Guardians of the Galaxy have found themselves stranded in New York City as their ship, the Benatar, is in serious need of repairs. It's currently perched, some might say teetering, on the top of Avengers Tower. Rocket and Groot are working on it, but they need parts. And it turns out Earth isn't the best planet to land on if you need to overhaul your intergalactic transmission. Parts cost money, and they are fresh out of Earth bucks, so the crew comes to the conclusion that one of them needs to get a job. And that one is Peter, because he's human. Mostly. (laughs) I mean, he's, he's half human. It would take too long to get into that, too. Peter is not thrilled about this. He knows the private sector expects results. But then he sees an ad in the paper. An extermination company is looking to hire. But not just any extermination company, it's one called the Ghostbusters. Quill makes his way to an old firefighting station and finds the Ghostbusters HQ, and he walks in and immediately applies for the job, whereupon he's accepted without hesitation. Uh, so I don't... Need to do an interview or anything?" he says. Listen, kid, says the office manager, "It looks like you got most of your parts, and you can carry some weight, so you're hired. Will is then brought into a conference room with a big screen in it, and before he knows it, he's watching an orientation video, and on the screen are these four schlubby guys in even schlubbier coveralls, carrying ridiculous huge equipment and they explain that they founded the company back in the 80s, and that things got really wild, and then they quieted down a bit, but eventually ghosts began popping up again, and so they franchised the company, and now they take more of a behind-the-scenes role. Quill, barely paying attention, gets through the orientation, and next thing he knows, he's given his own set of coveralls, which he reluctantly puts on. And then... The call comes in, and Quill finds himself jostled into a group with three other Ghostbusters. There's, um, shoot, I should name them, uh, Benny, and Roberta, and (laughs) Dominique. First time, says Dominique, who is clearly the sympathetic one we're setting up here. Fighting ghosts? No, no, I fought ghosts lots of times. Just, you know, not here on Earth, says Quill. Mm Mm-hmm, says Dominique. Well, let's consider this a ride-along until you get your feet under you. So Quill is whisked off, to get inside this weird station wagon-like car. It's called the Ecto-18. And they rush off to an apartment building on top of a deli. And apparently, there's some Rat King ghost up there. You know Rat Kings. They get their tails all knotted together, and they become this terrifying ball of rats. Anyway, Mm -hmm. there's a ghost one roaming this building. So the Ghostbusters, including Quill, go in and Dominique hands Quill a ghost trap. When I signal, you slide this under the ghost, she says. And Quill nods, and the group hunts down the ghost using PKE meters to track it down. And they find the Rat King ghost at the end of a hallway, and the Ghostbusters all whip out their little proton wands. And these days, they're much smaller than the 1980s models, but they still pack a huge energy punch with that wibbly-wobbly lines of proton energy that can cleave you in twain and so Quill has to dodge a couple of times as the Rat King Ghost and the proton beams fly around. It's real funny. Now, (laughs) yells Dominique, and the Rat King Ghost gets trapped in some beams, and Quill slides the trap under it, and the trap opens up, and a bright light shines, and Quill is temporarily blinded, and the team nabs their ghost. Not bad, rookie, says Dominique. You didn't even freeze out there. Most folks flip the first time they see a ghost. Wasn't my first time, says Quill, who is totally facing the wrong direction. Over here, buddy, your sight will come back. Just give it a little time, says Dominique. And that begins Quill's short career as a Ghostbuster. We then get a montage of him going on different calls, using a Proton Wand at first very ineffectively, because the power gets away from them, he causes way too much collateral damage, but gradually he gets to the point where he's almost competent with it. And then we also see him getting checks, which he then sheepishly hands over to Rocket and Groot, who take it to presumably buy parts for the ship. And then we also see montages of Rocket and Groot getting new threads and sunglasses, and Groot gets a new Nintendo Switch and stuff, but they always hide it whenever Quill comes back around. We pick up again sometime later, and several weeks have gone by, and Quill is crawling through these air ducts quietly, and there's this creepy music playing, and he's getting the drop on a musical ghost that's haunting a Broadway stage, floating close to the stage's ghost light and its singing old show-tune standards. And just as he's about to get to a vent where he plans to open up the vent and then just shoot this ghost from above, the ductwork gives way and he crashes down 20 feet to the stage. But this is Marvel, and characters can fall a very long way without actually getting hurt, unless they pass a certain threshold, at which point they totally die and there's no way that version of the character is ever coming back. Fortunately, that high is actually higher than 20 feet, so he's okay. (laughs) What follows is a musical battle as the ghost and Quill do this crazy awesome duet of You're the One That I Want from Greece. but it ends with Quill single-handedly zapping the ghost and trapping her. Take a bow, sis, he says, to no one. Then we see him return to Avengers Tower with his most recent paycheck, and Drax sees him before he goes to meet with Rocket and Groot. When do we leave this place, says Drax. Drax, come on, you know we have to fix the ship, says Quill. The furry one fixed the ship. It has been fixed for 20 Earth days," says Drax. Wait, they fixed the ship? Says Quill. Yes. How are you so bad at the language you grew up with? Asks Drax. Quill stomps over to the ship. Oh, says Rocket. I am Groot, says Groot, apologetically. I don't want to hear it from you, says Quill to Groot. He points at Rocket. You are in so much trouble. Hey, 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 I can explain, says Rocket. And after a moment of Quill staring at him, Rocket says, I really wanted a leather jacket, but I was a bit short, so like, if you have that paycheck? Quill ushers them into the ship. (laughs) In the process, he slaps a sticker on the side of the Benatar. A sticker with a ghost in the middle of a circle with a slash across it. Benatar, a.k.a. the Ecto-19, becomes the ship for the Ghostbusters of the Galaxy. We get credits and some cool 80s music on top of pictures of the crew all dressed in coveralls and fighting space ghosts, including Space Ghost.
4: The end. Oh, I absolutely loved it. Um, Thanks for ruining Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 3 for me, but I still absolutely (laughs) loved it.
3: (laughs) Yeah, Gamora ironically doesn't show up in it at all. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. But you do get Space Ghost, so there's something, right? You might get Brack. You know, who knows?
4: I almost put space ghost specific in mine instead of just a bunch of generic space ghosts as well. But now I'm glad I didn't.
3: Yeah, no, when you were getting to the space ghost part, I was like, "Uh uh-oh, we might both have the same joke and that's the way that I end mine. (laughs) 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 But uh, yeah, this one was fun. I mean, obviously like both Ghostbusters and Guardians of the Galaxy have those comedic elements to them. So Mm -hmm. they they both kind of lend themselves to zany humor, particularly humor at the expense of the protagonist, right? Like, like the Guardians of the Galaxy movies frequently have Peter Quill getting way over his head. And that's part of the comedy. It's very similar to stuff you would see in like Indiana Jones movies. It's one of those things that really appeals to me.
4: I agree. It appeals to me as well. Well, if it appeals to you and you've got your own version of how you think these two properties would be mashed up, you should write us and tell us it. Uh, Jonathan, how can they do that?
3: Well, they can send us an email. The email address is LNC at iHeartMedia.com. We've received some really nice emails recently, so thank you for that. Mm -hmm. Or you can reach out on the various social media platforms over on Twitter. We are LNC underscore podcast. And on Facebook and Instagram, we're Large Nerdron Collider. We'd love to hear from you. Uh, We always really like having conversations with listeners who, you know, we're fans like you. Like, we consider ourselves fans of you. We like that thing you do.
4: It's so true. Still stuck on Broadway, huh? Uh, yeah. Anyhow,
3: well, we're honey, stuck on you. That was a Hollywood musical, but OK. All right. Well, until yeah. next time, I am Jonathan Thunderpants Strickland.
4: And I am Ariel Lightning Face Castin.
5: come